0: Good morning. Thank you very much uh, for attending uh, this event. Um, we're very fortunate this morning to have three very experienced speakers who are going to share their, uh, their knowledge uh, and their insights with us. Um, we have Clive Lennox, who's Director of Irish Business Development at Silicon Valley Bank. We have Nicola McClafferty, who's Investment Director at Draper Esprit. And we have Paul Murray, who's Investment Director at Atlantic Bridge. And what I might do just to uh, start the process is is to invite them to maybe just give an overview of their organisation. The format of this morning is going to be very relaxed. I'm going to ask them a series of questions, ask them to share their their thoughts and their experiences of what they're seeing both in the Irish market and and internationally. And then at the end, uh, about uh, quarter to nine, we'll uh, open up the forum for, for questions. So maybe, um, Clive, if I could ask you to, to yes, start. No
1: uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Clive Lennox. I'm based in Dublin, so I'm kind of SVB's arm uh, in, in Ireland. And so SVB, in terms of what SVB is globally, it's a bank, commercial bank, based in uh, California, in the Valley, a uh, full commercial bank in the US, full commercial bank in the UK, offices in China, joint venture in China, offices in Israel, uh, Denmark just opened last week. And most importantly, the the office on Pierce Street in in Dublin. I'm not there too often, but there is an office in in, in Dublin, Pierce Street. We work exclusively with uh, technology and life science companies. So a couple of stats is probably the best, just to give you a flavor for who and what we do. About 40,000, 50,000 clients now. Um, We bank around 2,500 funds, so private equity, VC, and corporate funds. In the US, about 50% of all equity-backed companies are clients uh, of equity-backed technology and life science companies are clients of SVB. And then over recent years, over the last kind of three, four years, 50% of all companies have IPO in the same sectors have been clients of the SVB. In terms of Ireland, where, where my focus is, it's very much a debt and, and credit kind of offering. So providing loans and credit facilities to companies at all stages. So from venture through to large public and private companies, so it's kind of the full uh, debt, uh, tech um, and that's that's me. Great, Nicola. Uh,
2: good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Nicola McLafferty. I'm, I'm an investor with Draper Spree. Um, we're a pan-European early and growth-stage venture capital firm, mostly based out of London, but we do have a, a small office in Dublin, which uh, which I run, and I focus on both Irish investments plus kind of broader European. Um, we're, we tend to focus on sort of growth stage, so kind of an average ticket size for us is probably 5 million on the small end, up to about 25 million, so it's kind of scale-up capital, um, scale-up capital, really, uh, <laughs> across geography, across, the, uh, across Europe, and uh, sector-wise, we're fairly generalist tech, um, so we, we don't typically invest in life sciences or, or biotech, but other than that, kind of anything goes. Uh, consumer... B2B software, deep tech and hardware, and sort of digital health, another area we, we focus on. Um, yeah, that's us.
3: Morning everyone, Paul Murray is my name. I'm an investment director with Atlantic Bridge. We're a tech-focused investment fund, originally started here in Dublin and London, but over the past 15 years we've grown. We're now in Munich, Paris, Silicon Valley, and Beijing in China as well. And we, we have various different funds that we invest in different sectors, so we have a, a seed stage fund which is investing in spin-outs from Irish universities, and we have a growth stage fund which is kind of Series B, which is focused on uh, Europe and US, and we have a later Series C stage fund which is focused on Europe and China, so we, we kind of cover all those geographies. My main role is, I'm based here in Dublin, but I would focus a lot on our uh, European and Chinese investments. So investing in European companies and through a partnership we have with a Chinese VC helping them to grow into the Chinese market um, in, in terms of a few key stats we've invested in about 80 companies to date and but 40 of them are Irish uh, almost 500 million euros invested and again about 220 million of that has been in Irish companies so you know, very internationally focused but you know still a strong um, focus on Ireland as well. And In terms of sectors, we would tend to focus on more B2B rather than B2C, um, very much companies that have tech as a differentiator. Um, we, we particularly like deep IP, deep tech in hardware and software um, but we'll also look at enterprise software uh, which where it's more around business model innovation as well. Great, thank
0: you for that. Um, maybe I, I suppose that uh, we can start at the, I suppose at the beginning of the process. If, if if you're approached by an intermediary or by a founder or a company, um, what kind of things would you look for in terms of your initial evaluation of, of those companies? Whether there's something that that's there that you would have an interest in? What you know? Do you look for uh, IP? Do you look for management? Do you look for <coughs> some invested capital already? Uh, and then I suppose. Going on from that, what kind of diligence would you would
2: you uh,
0: get into as part of that right. process, Nicola, maybe I back ask you.
2: Sure. So, um, kind of kind of all of the above, right? So, <laughs> um, so for us, um, yeah. I mean, the first thing you mentioned, sort of previous invested capital. I mean, we do tend to come in at sort of more growth stage. That doesn't necessarily mean a business has always raised capital. We we tend more often than not, we're not the first institutional investor. So. In many cases, there will have been a, a seed investor, and, and we don't invest at seed stage. Um, but but not in every case. There's plenty of business that we have backed that have been bootstrapped, or we recently did a 15 million investment in a UK company that had just done crowdfunding. So um, so what really what we look for is, is a couple of things. I, I would say the, you know, we'll come back to, to team in a second because that's, obviously critical to everything we do, but but really we look a little bit for the the, the market size is, is really important to us as well. I mean, I think there are I, I think what a lot of people don't necessarily always appreciate is 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 quite how few businesses we really think are truly suitable to kind of raise proper sort of growth stage venture capital money in terms of the sort of growth rate and the scale that that we need to that we that we look for in companies. So I think one of the first things we'll do is, is obviously have a look at the business and understand the problem that's being solved by the company, uh, and how and the scale of that problem. So how big is the potential addressable market? Because we have to be able to answer the answer the the question. You know, do we believe that there is a potentially billion dollar business to be built in this market? Um, and so we sort of and we start from there. And, and you know, if we can get comfortable that it's that the market size is meaningful enough to build that scale of company, um, and then that the, act- that the business itself is doing so in a somewhat sort of unique or, or defensible way. So, you know, okay, you know, you're trying to solve this problem, and actually are you doing so in a new and unique way, and there aren't 20 other people trying to do the same thing? Um, we, would, we would definitely look for that. So. The approach to the business and the problem solving is is unique. Sometimes that's in the form of very defensible IP, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just in the form of you know uh, a unique take on a business model, and it can even be in the form of like the team itself has a has an advantage in this market because yeah. maybe access or previous experience. Um, obviously, we look at the team and the people. I mean that that really is important. Um, because it's all about the people that you back. Um, so again, we look for founding teams or management teams that have, you know, in our view, both the ambition and the opportunity and the potential ability to build that billion dollar business. And, and to, you know, that, that's the ambition of the company and the team. Um, and, and, you know, whether they have some kind of uh, experience in the space is always particularly useful if they know and understand the problem, they've lived the problem, they know the customer base that they're selling to. Um, and then of course, you know, when we're investing, if it's at Series A stage, you know, we tend to invest, when, when I talk about Series A, I mean, these these labels are becoming increasingly meaningless right now, right? But our, typically the smallest round size that we're getting involved in is about 10 million, and. You know, we may come back onto this, but one thing we've seen is inflation in round size. The average A round in Europe is 10 million now. It's not really in Ireland, but across Europe it is. So, you know, when you're investing in a 10 million round and are, and going up to sort of a 50 million raise, um, you know, you are looking for evidence of commercial traction. So, again, it's rare that we're investing in pre-revenue businesses. So we're looking for um, evidence that there are customers, there are paying customers, there is repeat repeat paying customers, so there's recurring revenue. Um, we're looking at engagement in the product. And there will be <coughs> metrics, again, at growth stage. You're looking for kind of certain metrics, and they'll look different if it's a consumer business or if it's a, if it's a software business. So it's kind of market, business model, team, and evidence of, evidence of early traction. Great.
0: Paul, would you similar
2: process? Yeah, yeah,
3: very similar. I think one thing I would say as well, though, is you know just at a very high level, even just you know what's the sector you're in. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes um, companies make is they spend a lot of time speaking to investors that aren't really looking to invest in the sector they're in. So it's always important to identify which investors you know have a particular affinity for the sector you're in, and you know really trying to align with them. Otherwise, you could be you know, you're, put, you're It's an uphill battle. Um, you know, everything Nicholas said. Absolutely agree with. I think one of the things we really focus on is that customer traction, and really getting comfortable with. You know, is there something here that, you know, people are willing to pay for? They really value. It's different and can be recurring. And, and so often, would, would you
0: be? Would you invest pre revenue or, or post revenue?
3: We. So, in, in software, we, will, we won't really invest post re, uh, pre-revenue, but in hardware, in, in semiconductors in particular, um, it's a particular aspect of that industry that you kind of go from zero to 50 million, and there's, there's nothing in between, so you kind of have that, you need to try and identify that inflection point just before it kind of kicks off. So we spend a lot of time talking to the, the customers, the strategics, we have a lot of relationships there. Um, and, and really understanding you know, what is the tech here. The team is very important for us, both in terms of the ability of the team, but also is there an awareness amongst the team of where the gaps are? Because there's always going to be gaps. Uh, but So you might find you have a very technical CEO, um, but he may think he's a great salesman, and he may not be. Um, you know, we'd much rather, a great technical CEO who understands that he needs to bring in someone to really help him on the commercial, he or she, to help on the, the commercial side. So that, that, you know, that self-awareness of the team is very important as well. Right.
0: I mean, one of the things that, that we as lawyers get asked, which we uh, will not answer, um, which is very rare for us, uh, is valuations. Um, and we, you know, the client will come in and say, look, I want to raise 5, 10, 15 million. Um, and, and this is the valuation and it's always a billion dollar market uh, whatever that is um, Clive I know you do a lot of work uh, and you publish great uh, 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 analysis of, of valuations across you know Europe and, and the US i mean what what's your kind of view on, on valuations of tech companies and, and how's that changing in the marketplace
1: yeah uh, valuations is always an interesting story and rightly so like you when you, I mean, you chat to founders, I suppose you have to remember that they at one stage owned 100% of the business, and then the, the cap table changes as they take on investors, and, and they're obviously sensitive to, to what, what the value of their company is and their stake in the company is. Um, well, valuations, I think it's, it's, it's clear to see. In the day, today, uh, there's never been more private money available to companies, so with so much private money chasing the best tech companies, uh, valuations are obviously going to appreciate uh we i think people are talking about are we Are is it are we at a high or is it is it? Is there a turn coming are we are, what are we, what are we seeing from from like next steps what's going to happen tomorrow um, but from my perspective I, if i'm putting myself in the founder's shoes and looking at my business i think it's a, and i the best opportunity now to go and raise money at a decent valuation because it is quite a unique period of time um, from a, an equity perspective, and all the money chasing good businesses. So, um, I think fill your boots as a founder for the, for, and that's what I think like, take more than you should. And that's where we lose, we're a debt provider, so we're not an equity provider. I think this year we put out about six, seven, eight term sheets um, to businesses. We're losing not to competition, we're losing to equity. So it's companies that have raised more money than they th- probably thought they could raise. Uh, which isn't a bad thing. So they've raised so much money; they don't need debt. So it kind of pushes our conversations out 12 months or 18 months, uh, which is a great, great place to be. And I think take advantage of it as much we, as we, possible.
3: We would encourage our companies to raise more now as well, yeah. because actually, w- one of the things we really focus on is cash runway, and how long does this funding take you? And it'll it'll never take as long as your original plan says. And you know, who knows how the markets are going to change in the next 12, 18 months? There's a, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, so. We're encouraging our companies, and even rounds are coming in on, if you can raise that a little bit more to maybe get you, you know, a realistic 24-month runway, it just gives you that little bit more security because you know, the number one cause of death of startups is they run out of cash. Uh, you know, it, it sounds very basic, but it's the biggest thing we focus on. How long will this cash last you? And, and
0: Paul, sorry, just in terms of I suppose then you know, taking the cash is great, the downside is the, is the dilution effect. Uh, and what's linked to that then is the valuation. I, yeah. I mean, do you have, in terms of your valuation, you know, is it something that is flexible? Is it something that is case specific? Does it vary terms?
3: It's very much case specific. Um, I think what I would always say is, you know, don't look at the valuation in the context of this round because likely you're gonna be raising a few rounds. So, you know, think about the entire journey. There is gonna be dilution and um, build to value inflection points and at those points when you've got a a higher um, valuation you know raise the bigger round Um, so raise appropriate to the stage you're at there is going to be dilution Um, at the end of the day you know we we have lots of options and you know valuation is something that's sensitive to us as well so there's going to be a negotiation but think of it in the context of not just this round but there's probably going to be you know a B, a C, a D, whatever Um, So it's not just one round of dilution.
2: It's a really important point, and it's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't often think about. Um, And, like, the first thing, like, in a way, at the very early stages, it's a bit of an art, not a science. You'd think valuation should be a nice mathematical formula, and it gets it gets there a little bit more as the business evolves and there's more data. And, you know, we do, we look at public company comps, we will understand how businesses in the software market, the SaaS space are trading. We use that as a broad benchmark. So you do get to to, to that point with valuation. But early, very early on with sort of seed stage companies, and I know it's what a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with. I mean, the truth is, you know, think of it in terms of sort of dilution. The reality is if you give up, you know, 40% is not standard dilution for a seed round. It should be closer to 2025. There are sort of frameworks across which you sort of operate. And so just do the research into what is sort of more sort of standard dilution types. And each round, it's somewhere between 15 on the low end to 30 on the high end, right? So think about what is the right amount of money to raise for your 24-month runway, uh, and, and then expect your dilution to kind of be in that broad range. If it's massively lower than that, fair play. You've run a really competitive process and, you know, you manage to drive the price up. If it's massively higher than that, frankly, you're getting into a difficult place if you're taking 40 plus percent dilution or that kind of range at seed stage. Because, as Paul said, there's more coming. And, you know, I always sort of say to entrepreneurism, and I think we probably all do, and it sounds obvious, do not. Optimize for price in the early stages, and I, you know, I talked to entrepreneurs, and they're like, "Yeah, of course you'd say that. You know, you're just trying to get the, you know, the best price." But the reality is, like, when when you optimize for price, and I've seen this a lot recently, in particular over the last couple of years, like we invest at sort of Series A and Series B companies that you know raised an A round for example at a really high price because they could and the the market you know said they could and it was competitive and there's a lot of money chasing it but the one thing that removes from you is flexibility and at series A you're still an early stage company things are still moving are you going to execute perfectly in that 24 months probably not that's okay But it's not okay if you've suddenly put this price on your business here, and now you need to come back to the market in 24 months' time, and you haven't quite achieved what you said you would, but you've done this price. Now, suddenly, you're in a really tough place where any valuation discussion is suddenly really painful for everybody, and you're looking at flat rounds or down rounds, and that really starts to limit you going forward. So if you can be really smart about valuation and think of it, over that long haul. It just gives you a lot more flexibility and options as you think about continuing to raise.
1: And that's important from our world when, it, exactly on Nicholas' point there, from a <laughs> the debt perspective, if you come to conversations after a flat round or a down round, like that's a red flag where you kind of go, well, what, what happened here? Right. So if there's not a good story as to why that's happened. We're kind of going, hold on, there's something going on here. So it's a very important point. Sure.
0: Tied into the, I suppose, the question of valuation and dilution is the the founders Management team's percentage, uh, and that's something that we, as we start with companies and founders as they move through the process of the early stage, maybe the angels, and then C D, and they move up, uh, they're they getting you know they get quite focused on, um, and I think it's a. The question, I suppose, is there, you know when you look at companies and you look at the the, the post investment uh, share cap, are you looking for management to have a good you know, piece of the action so that they're incentivized and motivated? Because we've had in the Irish market some, you know, companies where the founders have not done, I suppose, as well as they probably should have. Is that something that is important in terms of the the share cap table?
3: Very much so, and it's it's interesting how across, you know, globally it's different. So you go somewhere like Germany, people aren't actually that focused on ESOP, stock options, things like that, although it's changing, Uh, and partly that's due to tax. The U.S. is very much focused on it, um, and typically you could see 20 25 percent, maybe even allocate the ESOP, and, and Ireland is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, there's there's two things really to think about. It first of all, it's 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 only right and fair that you know that the people that put the work in share in the upside, and um, and obviously secondly for retention because. Um, these employees are key. Without without them, there is no business. We're we're not in the business of running a business, and um, we don't want to step in or hire other people in. So, having that retention in terms of an option pool is really important. And um, but typically, it's something we do with a vesting schedule as well to you know enable that um, retention piece. Nicholas.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean. We're, 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 all on the, we're always on the same page as, as the management team. It's not in anybody's interest for the management team and the leaders of the business not to be incentivized to grow the company. So we will always be looking at that and ask the question on the cap table. There have been plenty of examples of kind of where we've seen management, we call it a re-up, you know, if if over the course of the, you know, the business uh that the the management team or the founding team who are kind of very much so running the company if they've been diluted to a point that it's kind of looking a bit tough for them we would look at a re-up in the right round business raises enough capital expansion of the option pool reallocation you know we we always want to ensure that they're incentivized and and it you know there's, there's other ways we look at it too i mean it's Particularly, let's say, at sort of Series B stage, the other thing we're seeing more and more of, and we do quite a lot of it, is we look at secondary at the right stage as well. So, I mean, again, it's all about being on the same page. This is a very long road. It's a long road for a founder. It's an even longer road for a founder than it is for us, but it's also a long road sitting on the boards of these companies and and scaling these companies. So, you know, a lot of our companies, for example, even at that, not typically at sort of Cedar A, but certainly at B and upwards, you know, It is not in our interest for a founder or a CEO to be losing sleep at night because he's struggling with a mortgage or she's struggling with childcare costs. So so we've looked at sort of secondary in some of our deals as well, Mm -hmm. where you might give a bit of liquidity to a founder at some point and then continue to make sure that they're, you know, look, your mind is on the business. And, and that, you know, they're, they're set up on the cap table correctly. And it's, it's, it's always in, in our interest to ensure that that's the case. I
3: think it's important, you know, if you look at how venture capital works as opposed to maybe other you know other types of private equity investments might be about, you know, squeezing more out of the business, maybe getting a bit more of the pie through, you know, great negotiations. Really, how VC makes its money is making the pie bigger for everyone. And I know it sounds a bit... Yeah, you would say that again, but it's kind of back to valuations and everything. Really, how we make money is, as Nicholas said, it's billion-dollar companies, and you don't get that by nickel-and-diming founders. You, you know, you have to be aligned with everyone, and you know, give them enough security that they can go for the big outcomes. And that's one of the big differences between venture capital and maybe other kind of, you know, buyout stage or kind of private equity. We, we are genuinely making money by. The pie getting bigger for everyone. So that's why even things like valuation are, you know, don't worry about it so much, worry about growing the business.
2: As a founder, then, you need to ask yourself the question pretty early on is that what I want? And I, you know, I, I often think, does, it, does this automatic assumption, my founders, I think, that, you know, you set up a company, you raise VC. And actually, like, globally, You know, less than one percent of all businesses set up every given year raise venture capital money, and and you know, and that that, you might assume that's even in tech. You know, it's it's you know, this is a really outdated statistic, right? But in 2014, you know, 75 percent of tech exits didn't have venture backing. So, you know, there is this assumption that you should raise venture money, but you've got to ask yourself that as a founder: is is do you want to go and build kind of the, the the billion dollar business, and is that what motivates you, and is that because the day you take money from somebody like us or somebody like you know, Paul and, at, at Atlantic Bridge is you know, the day, frankly, you take the option of selling your company for 50, 100 million off the table. Now, if you're a founder and you still own 80% of that business, 90% of that business, that's a life-changing outcome for anybody. And, and that's a very valid choice to make and, and to build a business in that way. But if you truly believe you can build a billion-dollar business, then, you know, you talk to people like us to give you the capital to do that, but, but recognize that that's the journey then that you're going on because, you know, by the time we invest, you know, the amount of money we want to invest in a company over time and the dilution and everything else, that's what we're trying to, to, to build, that, that really big outcome.
0: Sure. Maybe we could move on to that question. In terms, of, Paul, for example, in your typical investments, what's your your you know your ambition for the company in terms of you know is it a five ten year horizon? You know, the, you know, a lot of it will depend on circumstances. We'll come on to I suppose exits in a little while, but in terms of just the the you know, once you're in the door, you know, the next you know five seven years.
3: Yeah, I, I would say typically it's yeah it's a five to seven year maybe five to ten year seven is probably the average. Um, and you know, we're looking for making at a minimum five to ten times our money back. So you kinda of work that backwards from the valuation we go in and it's at least a three, four hundred million exit and you know, hopefully bigger, you kind of aim for the, the big outcome, but um you know, you really you really you're starting that journey where we might invest in a round which is say twenty million and it's okay, in, in eighteen months all going to plan, it's gonna be a fifty million round. Maybe you know, hundred million IPO or whatever. So, it's very much mapping out that yeah, five to seven year journey. Sometimes it's quicker, sometimes it's longer, but it is that long, longer. Some would say it's not that long term, but yeah, around a seven year sure. time frame.
0: Clive, one of the things you know, your Silicon Valley Bank do is is they you know, as you mentioned at the outset, as companies get bigger, they start looking at debt instead of equity, less dilution, and, and Silicon Valley do a, a lot of that kind of you know. Uh, later stage type uh, investments. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's kind of our sales pitch, like if for, from an owner's perspective, it's it, when you're taking on equities, if you're to raise a 10 million euro round, why not raise age in equity and two in debt, so it gets to the same number, so it gets to 10, so if you've modelled out a, a two year kind of cash burn and you need 10 million to do that, and like there's a debt facility that allows you to, to get to that, that stage without diluting, as, as much as you probably thought you, you had to if you were going all equity. Um, and um, it, it, it's a pretty, it's like a for, for owners that are sensitive and are looking, like they kind of got their eye on two things. They want the two-year the, the two run rate. They want the 10 million to build the business out two years, but they also just want to keep an eye on, on kind of their dilution in the business. So it's a, it's a really good product. And what that can do, it can complement, it's very much a complement to equity. So although I mentioned earlier on that equity rounds have come in and because they're quite large, they're, Kind of, they're trumping our, our term sheets, but equity and debt actually coincide very nicely for venture businesses, uh, where they can debt be part of each subsequent round. So if you're going on an A round, B round, C round, D round, our idea is that each and every time you'll refinance the debt that's in the business and get a, an additional facility um, as you as you grow up and add other facilities to it as well. Uh, so it's very much a complement, and for us, the equity component is quite important. And who. The equity component is, for, is from is quite important. Uh, that allows us kind of to flex up and lean into certain businesses, depending on business uh, and also who's around the table from an equity perspective. So it's it's pretty. It, I think it's pretty compelling, and it's something that is often considered. Sure.
0: Can I can I touch on? I suppose who's who's at the table. Um, one of the things that we see, with, you know, I suppose at the earlier stages, <coughs> you, you might have uh, you know <coughs> friends and family. You may have. Uh, angels and they're useful for a period of time and then, you know, new investors come in. When you're looking at a company and you're looking at a round, do you like to lead? Do you like to see other venture capital funds co-investing? And what kind of a a board are you looking at, kind of post-investments? Nicola? Um,
2: Sure. So um, we're, we're kind of agnostic about leading but then we need to get to the stake that we need to get to. So we kind of, uh, and again, there's no sort of hard and fast rule on what that is, but typically our ownership stake is anywhere from kind of, again, 15 to 25% of a company on average, um, sometimes a bit higher, sometimes lower. Um, So we kind of have a target stake. So again, if we're investing at Series A, you know, to get to that kind of stake, yeah, you're probably leading and sort of similarly at B. Um, But, you know, if there's there's an example of, you know, more at B stage, where actually we think that makes a lot of sense to put more deep pockets around the table. We have plenty of examples where we've co-invested with other larger funds as well, uh, and we're happy to do that. So, um, so no, we're not hard and fast on, on having to lead around, um, but it is about just getting to the right ownership stake for us. Um, and then, you know, typically... Yeah, I mean, if there are other VCs, you would expect certainly institutionals, less on friends and family and angel, because there's a recognition that, you know, look, they're not the deep pocket investors here. So, you know, we understand if if angels and friends and family aren't taking their pro rata, if they have that, you know, in in subsequent rounds, that's that's very understandable. If there are other VCs and institutional money in, I mean, there would be an expectation that they would take at a minimum or at least their pro rata, so what they're entitled to, if they're not, it sort of raises a question as to why. Because frankly, you're in the business; you know more than I do. So you're choosing not to put your money in, but I am. So we would look uh, for other institutional[s] that you know, certainly VCs, professional <coughs> investors that are in there. Typically, and more often than not, we would see them participating, as we would expect. You know, when we are invested in a company, as they raise subsequent rounds, and you know, they would tend to, you you tend to bring in a new investor at each new round. Mostly because you need somebody to price it and to put a value on the business rather than somebody internal. But again, as those subsequent rounds happen and we're already in the business, we would have an expectation of continuing to participate at each subsequent round.
1: The cap tables funny. when you look at the cap tables of Irish companies versus the UK and the US at kind of that seed round, they look completely different, but in my experience where you find in Ireland there's uh, quite a lot of like, high net worth money quite, and on very active community like from mm. a high net worth perspective. So when it gets to kind of that A round and then we see A round investors looking at, at the cap table, it, all, it can often be look a bit muddled in terms of, we, we like to see um, when funders are coming in, they, they kind of like to clean it up a little mm. bit um, and make it look like less numbers. Like, like the spreadsheets I've seen, like, there's thousands of people on the cap table and you kind of, that's pretty impressive work like for someone to go around knocking on doors and to raise that, that money. But as you kind of get to an A, B, C round, I don't think that's uh, workable um, from, from my experience. In, in the U.S. and U.K., it's a little bit different. You kind of get more, it's quicker to an institutional. It could be an institutional seed, uh, like, but it's definitely, it looks a lot cleaner, it's smaller. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but that's just the way it is. Um, but Irish companies, when they get to A, B round, I would have thought, and the guys that, that you're looking to kind of clean it up a little bit, have less names on the cap table, and it looks a bit more investable from the next round. Cause you're, similar to what Paul said on, you're always looking at the subsequent liquidity events and how do I best kind of position the business to do additional, uh, additional funding.
3: And, and the big issue there as well is if you have you know 50 people on the cap table, you need to get 50 signatures for anything you want to do, future rounds of funding, etc. Um, and you know, at the seed stage, you may not have a lot of power to negotiate that, but it's something you know, the A or the B investor, we will always, as a condition of investment, put most of them into some kind of nominee structure so that you know, they still have the representation, but there's one signature. You're not chasing um, you know, 50 different people. And it, it, can, it can cause rounds not to happen because you need to get a signature and someone's off on holidays, um, and they might only have put you know, Sorry, a couple of grand. That happens. <laughs> So it's it's really important, but at the seed stage you may not have the negotiating power to do it, but you know, the A investor or the B investor who's writing the check, we will typically put it as a term in our term sheet.
0: No, I think that makes a, a whole lot of sense for, for both the, the management, the company and the rest of the investors because you, know, you are looking at follow-on rounds, you're looking at potential exit and, and the more you have uh, in terms of shareholders on the actual register, the more uh, uh, administrative uh, a burden it becomes. Um, in terms of the, the assistance that, that venture capitalists can, can, can give to companies, um, I think that's one where you, know, you sometimes hear people saying you know, they, they promise a lot in addition to the capital, and sometimes it doesn't it doesn't happen. Uh, I know from experience that, that your funds are different because you have a lot of sector knowledge and you're internationally focused, so you have, I suppose, a lot more connections and, and deep-seated experience within the, those sectors that you invest in. But maybe you might just share with us you know, your views on that and how you can contribute other than just being the, the capital.
3: Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, as, as we've said, there is a lot of capital around now. Kind of cash is a bit of a commodity. So it's actually what comes with that cash. And so we in Atlantic Bridge, were all from kind of entrepreneurial backgrounds. So, you know, Brian Long, our managing partner, he founded a company here in Dublin that grew to a two billion market cap on the NASDAQ. So when we invest, you get someone like a Brian Long on your board, um, you know, which is hugely valuable from, you know, strategic direction that the board um, the key hires you can make at the senior level. You know, we're not looking at down in the weeds necessarily, but senior senior members of your team. And I think the other two things, we've got very strong relationships with a lot of strategic customers and that we can make the introductions at very high level. And I think what's very important for European companies when you get to the scale-up stage is there is only a limited pot of capital in Europe for growth stage investments. If you want to do a 50 million round, really you need to be going to the US um, and having the connectivity with those big US funds um, and having a presence out there and socialising with them getting to know them and having an investor like you know, Atlantic Bridge or a Draper who's already in there that they know, you know that brings a huge amount um, of, of advantage as well because these big funds yes they do go to Europe but they prefer to stay in Sand Hill Road because it's just easier for them
2: it's, it's kind of very similar. It's, you know, it's not our job to run the company. That's, that's what you guys do, and that's what you guys will always do better. Um, but what we have done is back hundreds of businesses over a 10, 15-year history um, across our whole team. So, you, again, you get people, somebody on your board who has that breadth of experience and has seen this being done. And and sort of seeing what good looks like. I often kind of think about that, which is like if you're kind of on this road for the first time, even if you're making a hire, you know, at the, we get quite involved at senior level hiring because we have that network of people, but we also have seen what excellence looks like in that. And you can really help guide sort of management team as to, you know, what does like a top class, you know, head of sales actually look like and, and help and support in that hiring process. And then, of course, there is the, the US, and we've got a strong touch point in the US through the Global Draper Network. That's really valuable. Um, just being able to plug, we, we think of it as a kind of an outsourced corporate development function. We have a team over there that spend a lot of their time building relationships with US corporates. Um, so, if we can help open doors, knock on doors, you know, that's that's very much kind of part of what we do.
1: Yeah, although we're not an equity investor, we can kind of behave like one in many, in, <coughs> in separate to the money that when we when we work alongside a business. Um, for us, it's opening up doors when people are looking to raise funds. We bank 2,500 funds, so it's a case of, you mentioned earlier it, on, it's getting quite specific in terms of what funds are interested in your sector at your stage. So we're able to go in and kind of, well, here's five funds that we know are active, looking to get stuff done and looking to get busy in your specific sector. We also have a corporate ventures team, which is quite unique. Um, I don't really consider ourselves, but look at ourselves as bankers. We kind of spend our most of our time introducing. Uh, so as a corporate ventures team where we have a team specifically working with top four, uh, Fortune 500 companies, so it's opening up doors, it could be from a biz dev side, it could be from talking to their venture funds they're looking to invest, or just companies that are looking to acquire. So we very much will identify uh, potential acquirers of businesses, our businesses are looking to acquire, say somewhere EdTech will go into our database of clients and go, well, here's 100 companies that are five to 10 million in revenues, that we think would fit you your profile if you're on an acquisition spree. So it's identifying kind of very much a US play. If you're in the US and you're busy and you're trying to get in front of people from fund perspective, a potential acquirer, or companies you're looking to acquire, that's something that we can kind of open up.
0: Great, thank you. Maybe uh, as we're coming to the end of the of, the, uh, of this stage, um, maybe you might share your, your views on, on exits. And uh, I suppose there's a couple things just to prompt you, I suppose, the first thing is, you know, is it a case that sometimes the founders want an exit and and the investors don't, or vice versa? Um, what's the the exit market looking at? We know just from the papers that you know the, the, the stock exchange listings are, are not really favourable a month anymore. Um, and I suppose what's your your overall approach to to an exit process and how you would manage that, Nicola, Do you want to share your thoughts?
2: Sure. So um, I was probably I didn't mention our introduction, but we. We look a bit different as well to a standard venture capital firm in that we're a public company so um, and that sort of dictates a little bit how we think about exit two and we ipo'd three years ago we did have multiple 10-year fund structures but you know in reality you know we talk about a five to seven year time horizon of holding companies it can be a lot longer and building global scale companies from europe takes a really long time like 10 years plus and so um, our model, we invest in our own balance sheet, and it's very much what we call patient capital. So what we want to do is remove time, as in fund timelines, from how we think about, you know, exiting a company. So you shouldn't exit a business because, you know, clock's ticking on the fund and our LPs need their money back, and therefore we need to kind of get out of the company. Any exited company should be dictated by, you know, the right time from, from the company's perspective, from a market perspective. Um, so, so that's something that, that, that we're pretty strong on, which is, you know, just it, it should be about the right time for the company. Um, and then, but, but naturally, it is our business. It, you know, we are in the venture capital business. It is our job to, you know, once you raise VC money, there will be a liquidity event. There will need to be a liquidity event, be that an M&A, be that, be that IPO. Um, and you just uh, typically... It, it, it tends to kind of happen reasonably organically in, in most cases that as the businesses grow and, and continue to scale and become successful, you know, there will be, you may get acquisition offers along the way. We've seen that unsolicited uh, acquisition offers. You discuss it as a board. You figure out, is it the right thing? you know, or you kind of get to a point that it's been a really long journey and everybody agrees that maybe it is the right time, you know, the market, there's some activity in the market. If we leave it too long, we might miss our window. So you do maybe hire an advisor at that point to explore what those options might be. And we look at the public markets as well. I mean, you know, y- yes, there's been kind of a wave of of some high-profile kind of. There's also been some very, very strong-performing um, uh, tech IPOs, and I think actually the public markets are starved for um, are starved for for really interesting tech IPOs. And we've got a you know a few in our business right now that are very much looking at that at that path. Um, we have some that are. You, know, we've had companies that are you know a week before hitting the market just get acquired, right? And that's you know. Keeping your options open, um, we will always talk to management. Frankly, if management are screaming that they want to get out of the business, you know, we can't force them to sort of stay in the company. So it does, it's very much a board discussion with everybody around the table. And it's kind of a combination of management, the shareholders, and the market timing that will dictate all of that. PAUL
3: yeah, but I mean, I think though, you know, companies are bought, they're not sold. So it's not really like the board decides we're going to sell and then you do a process and you go out and sell and you're going to get a great price. Uh, you know, buyers know that they're a the motivated seller. So really the way to do it is just just keep building the business, you know, generate value for your customers, grow the business. And as Nicola said, what can often happen is you get an inbound from um, one of the acquirers and, you know, the board might decide, well, okay, now's the time to sell. And then you might... You might bring in a banker and, and get it a process and try and get some competitive tension going, um, or you may decide you'll, you'll just you know go with that one buyer. Um, but really, it's it's just about building the value. Um, if if founders want to get out at a certain point, you know that can be tricky. And um, if and you know if we still believe there's value in, in growing the business, we may look at doing some kind of secondary at that point, or you know over time phasing in new management. Um, you know in terms of IPO it is quite common you can you know build to an IPO and you know, it could be the day before you'll get taken out it is pretty rare for tech companies to go the whole way to public and um, not sure what the stats are but it's probably less than one percent so really it is true MA. and all the big tech companies you know the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Facebooks and you know all the others they're sitting on a lot of cash they're very acquisitive and um, you know, one of the big things you're seeing now in the tech sector in general is everyone's trying to own the entire stack, from you know the hardware piece right up to the cloud and everything in between, and, and that means acquiring. Um, you know, you can't build all of that organically. You're seeing the same in software; it's all about platforms and offering everything to your customer, and, and that means m and So it's you know the markets are good right now for that.
2: I'm sorry, the other thing we've seen is the rise of private equity as a very meaningful exit. I mean, previously that kind of used to be the kind of value value exit and value pricing. But what we're seeing more and more with companies is private equity and financial buyers paying, competing with strategics and corporates yeah. at pricing for, for assets as they're kind of chasing growth and trying to deploy capital. So, So that's become much more of a viable exit route uh, over the last couple of years.
0: Sure, and I think, Clive, that your analysis that you publish quarterly, you know, would show that.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to provide to anyone who hasn't got it. It's pretty good. Like, I pretend it's my own material, but obviously it's not. Like, it's, it's some it's <coughs> genius in the background gathering all the data. And I'm, I'm from a depth, like, when I'm on the, on, on the clock, uh, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like, it's kind of great, yeah, we got, like, ultimately, your you lend to get repaid back, so if there's a, an acquisition or IPO, you actually get your loan back. Uh, which is which is great in, in kind of in the venture space but also it's kind of the end of the journey from a debt perspective because usually it's acquired by all the names that Paul mentioned and they kind of get uh, swallowed up into the, into that machine which is great for the business from a from a debt uh, perspective just means your, your journey's is kind of ended we're not looking for an equity return and um, but I think from a um, exits and it is M&A, I think always having that option where you're kind of dangling the IPO piece like you're building towards an IPO is very important. Uh, there's no harm, why, why shouldn't you kind of build that into your story. The likelihood is um, M&A activity will, will ultimately acquire um, <coughs> software hard, hardware businesses um, and now is a great time to kind of consider build that journey. Plan it, I think we are talking earlier on it's, it's planning it and from a board level what we see work really well. Because we're kind of an outsider observer, it's when you have management and investors and it's not a conversation it doesn't happen overnight it's like the conversations are happening two years in advance like what are we (laughs) building towards what's our ultimate goal what are we trying to achieve from an exit strategy and i i often see that it's it tends to be in unison from at a board and at a a kind of investor uh, management level
3: but i think it's it's worth saying as well from an ecosystem perspective that the exit is not the end because what we're seeing more and more is the company exits a couple of years later maybe the kind of middle management who've kind of seen, they have a role model now, maybe they have a bit of cash from the exit, but like, actually I want to do this as well. Um, and maybe the founders, they start angel investing and maybe going again. And you're seeing more and more of this recycling and regenerating of the ecosystem. So, you know, the exit is not the end. And you know, that's another reason why for us, it's important founders do well, because it's a long-term game and you know, if. If you don't treat entrepreneurs right, you know it's a small world. You know people won't take funding from you. Yeah. Over time, that gets around, and we have probably four CEOs now that were back in their second company. Um, so you know people like to go again, and it kind of regenerates and it exits. Whilst you might the media might portray it as oh another Irish company gone, but it's it's kind of part of the cycle in tech in particular. It's it's it is part of the cycle, and it does get regenerated. And then you'll get more dead opportunities. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. That was very
0: insightful. Um, uh, On behalf of of our guests and on behalf of uh, Mason Hayes and Curran, I'd like to thank Clive, Nicola, and Paul for their insights and for coming out early this morning and and sharing their thoughts and experiences with us. Thank you very, very much.
3: Thank you.